Thank you all for being with us today. Thank you for giving to our church, and thank you for worshiping, celebrating Christmas with us. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6 in just a little bit uh, as we capstone this journey to Christmas we've been on the last couple of weeks. You know, we gather here on Christmas Eve, and it all makes sense. Uh, we re- we've read the accounts. We've memorized many of the verses at this point, the prophecies, uh, the accounts in Matthew and, and Luke. Uh, we've sang the carols. We've seen the plays. We've watched the documentaries. We've heard all the sermons several times. Uh, we open our Bibles from Genesis, and we can find stepping stones on every page from front to back that details the Christmas story. We can cite the prophecies, Isaiah to Micah. Uh, it, it's all here, leather-bound, neatly put together in our Bibles right in front of us. Christmas just makes sense to us. We expect it. We know all about it. It, it's just something that we're so used to that we, 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 we can put it all together and we can explain it so easily. We sit here marveling at how it all came together just as God said that it would. And, it, and to us, it's understandable how the world came under the influence and impact uh, of what happened on a winter's night over 2,000 years ago. No single day in history, just think about this, no single day in history has such a wide-sweeping, international, multi-generational effect on the world as Christmas has. It, it's not even close. Christmas ignited and initiated a brand new era in the world, and and although it took a few years for most to realize it, in hindsight, it's crystal clear. Christmas would forever be the dividing line in history. There would be a before Christmas, and there would be an after Christmas, because when you stack up how much Christmas changed everything, there just had to be a way to distinguish time and life before and after such a monumental, transformative day. And that is, in fact, the case every time you write the date, the day uh, on a document, a check, a letter, whatever, uh, every time we write down the day, we are evoking, we are calling back to Christmas. We don't think about it every time that we do it, but that is the case. Today is December 24th, 2023, and we don't put this little uh, suffix at the end of our, our dates in our modern world, but it's... To 2023 A.D. or Anno Domini. And in just a week, it'll be 2024 A.D. Again, Anno Domini, which means year of the Lord. Now, we don't really talk about this when we discuss whatever the day is. I I mean, nobody does because it really doesn't make a difference. Uh, but, But for the purposes of our gathering today, to cause us to sit back and marvel even more at how influential and important Christmas is and, and how much of a dent in history Christmas made, how much of a mark it left on history, I think it's appropriate that we lean into this for just a minute today. Do you ever think, and in, in for the next few minutes we will, do you ever think about how Jesus, about how Christmas Day specifically, literally split history in two? Now, maybe you don't, but again, for the next few minutes, we're going to. And and I think it would be good for you to think about the significance of the reality in which we live, the framework around how we literally number our days. And while you may know the Christmas story very well, and while you may know the story as it's told by Matthew and Luke, maybe you don't know the story of how Christmas would go on to split history. But you're about to know. And that's why you came here today, I'm sure. So, uh, um, so it would be, so in what we would recognize as the 6th century AD, they didn't know it was the 6th century AD until this all happened. 
in what we would call um, the 6th century AD, a monk named Dionysius. That's someone, we, we should use that name for our kids a little more often, right? Uh, a, a monk named Dionysius who served the church in what is now Romania. Um, he was tasked by the church and by the ruling government to help consolidate the many, many different calendars that were at play in his world. Uh, he was chosen because he was an expert, a scholar. He was studying, trying to put together a timeline of events. Dionysius was asked by the church and by the government to help consolidate what at the time was a very confusing calendar. And for us, it's hard to imagine because we just know the calendar is what it is. But in what would retrospectively be 525 AD, he was trying to trace back the time, trace back to the time of the incarnation to the very date that Jesus was born. Now, in those days, the calendar was always resetting. They used things called epochs, which is a, a way to measure time, to denote uh, what current, what was going on and what, what year it was and, and how many years since one thing or another. Um, so when they would talk about the year, it was very convoluted and it was very confusing and it was really based on where you lived and, and what history you were aware of. Uh, and there would be calendars on top of calendars. So if you read ancient history, even if you read the Bible, you'll, you'll read things like this. It was the 40th year of the king, the 80th year of the kingdom, and the 12th year since the great disaster. And there were so many ways they measured time. In fact, in the Bible, you'll read about how something happened in the ninth year of this king, but it was the 19th year of this other king. And, and that was how they measured time. It was very messy. Nobody wanted to defer to another kingdom's calendar, so every kingdom had their own way of measuring time. And, and certain kings and certain kingdoms had followings and family who wanted their guy to be the reference point even after he was dead and replaced. So you can imagine how this might work in our country. Um, somebody might would say it's the fourth year of this president. It's the ninth year of another president. It's the 15th year of another president. And could you imagine how confusing that would be? Uh, there would be people that would say, well, it's, you know, it's been this many years since George Washington and this many years since FDR and so forth and so on and so forth. And it would be very convoluted, but that's how they measure time a few thousand years ago. And um, so at the time that Dionysius was tasked to unify the timeline, the epoch that was measuring the years was, uh, was Anno Diocletian. And Anno Diocletian referred to the year of the emperor Diocletian. And he was a prominent emperor of Rome and they really hadn't reset the calendar in a few hundred years. So everybody was basically saying, yeah, it's the year 200 um, of Diocletian because he was emperor 200 years ago or became emperor. So that's how they measured time. And every few hundred years, somebody would get enough power to change that. And it would be anno something else uh, and, and so on and, and so forth. So at the time, the Byzantine Empire, which was just the, the new version of the Roman Empire, um, it, it was in sync with the church. They were sponsoring and supporting the church. So the Byzantine Empire asked the church um, to figure out let's find an easier way to measure time. Uh, and let's find a way to unify the timeline. And we have so much influence over our area and over the world, we might can get everybody else to buy into it. So they all had a meeting and they all agreed that the best way to do this, and because everything changed when Jesus was born, they needed to find a way to go back in time and figure out when Jesus was born as close as they could and draw a line in the sand there. So Dionysius was tasked to bring all the Roman and Byzantine provinces under a unifying calendar. Everyone agreed it made sense to figure out when Jesus was born and say that is the reset point. Because to them, that was the point 
that all previous history had been up, had been up to. And that was the moment in time, as Paul put it, that was the moment in time that was the fullness of time. Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption. That's the time when God stepped into creation and brought salvation to all who were in bondage to all the different laws and religions of the world. So Dionysius did his homework. He pulled together as many resources and reference points as he could until he felt confident enough to say, this is when Anno Domini began. This is the first year of our Lord and so on. Because of the influence of the empire, they had confidence they could export this calendar. And I'll spare you the diplomatic details. But by 900 AD, so within 400 years, the European, Asian, and African world, which was pretty much the known world at the time, by 900 AD... Every country was deferring to this framework. And A.D. was put at the end of the year. And it was all in reference point to when Jesus was born. And they started using the phrase B.C. to denote the before times. And so here we are 1,500 years later. And everyone on the planet is using the calendar that Dionysus charted out back in 525 A.D. So... If the conversation gets stale tonight at the table or tomorrow, just roll up your sleeves and say, does anybody know the story of Anno Domini? Does anyone know the story of how Christmas divided history between AD, BC and AD? I'll share my notes with you if you know. Now, if, if you decide to do that, you may have that one secular, non-religious relative that will push their glasses up and say, well, you know, we don't really use B.C. and A.D. anymore. You know, we've got these, uh, you know, neutral, uh, unoffensive things that we use now. It, it, we, we use B.C.E., which is before Common Era, and we use Common Era or C.E. so that people that aren't Christians don't have to feel like they're stuck in that, that, that frame. And you could respond by saying, hey, that's fine. But they didn't come up with a whole new calendar system. They just swapped out the letters. And the point is, neutral labels aside, even with the neutral labels, B.C., A.D., B.C.E., or C.E., Jesus is still the one that split history into. And here's the thing. Even secular atheist historians agree there's no better way to mark the two eras of history than this one. Because even those that don't believe Jesus is the Lord, that don't worship him have to admit that Jesus and Christianity and the church made such an impact on the world. There is before and there is after. Even those who don't believe in the supernatural, don't follow Jesus as Lord, admit he changed everything and the landscape of history, the landscape of civilization is different because of him. The aftermath of what the church did to the Roman Empire, how that shaped the modern world. There's no denying that if not for Jesus and his followers, the future may have looked a lot different. And it would have looked a lot different. And so, whether you use BCE or CE or stick with BC and AD, guess what? It is the year 2023. The year 2024 is still defined and determined by the very first Christmas. Isn't that incredible? There's no way that anyone can ignore the imprint, the footprint that Jesus left on the world because every winter, every December, every fourth quarter of the year is all about him. 
The whole world revolves around his celebration of his birth. The whole world revolves around Christmas. If you haven't stood back and marveled, maybe now's as good as time as any to do that. Of course, you, you didn't need the little history lesson. You didn't need me to put it in perspective to know that Christmas changed everything. It's like I said at the beginning. We know the story. We feel the significance of the days of celebration year after year. But for just a minute, I'd like for you to go back to the days of Jesus with me. And I'd like for you to try to imagine a world where there weren't as many people supposing that Jesus would ever be more than a local celebrity. If you were to go back 2,000 years ago and you were to walk up to somebody in Galilee and say, hey, years from now, the whole fourth quarter of the year is going to be all about that guy. The carpenter? The peasant? The one who stays in town and takes care of his mom? That guy? You mean the whole world's going to stop and celebrate his birth? Hmm. That's kind of wild. But 2,000 years ago, when Jesus walked on this earth, nobody expected him to be anybody but just a local nobody. Some had hoped that he might be a political revolutionary that Israel needed to challenge the Judean government to break free from Rome. But with the deep machinations and the religious and political system, it was going to take more than just a wise rabbi to change the world. And even after Jesus started doing, uh, preaching good sermons, and even after he started doing a few miracles, healing the sick and blessing the poor, people still looked at him and thought, is this guy really Messiah material? So if you've, you've got your Bibles open to Mark 6, which probably isn't your traditional Christmas narrative, but there's a reason for this. Because Mark 6 really captures the agreed upon observation about Jesus during his ministry by those that were closest to him. Mark 6 is an account of Jesus in his hometown. And listen to how the people that were closest to him responded to him. Then he went from there and came to his own country and his, his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many hearing him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? And the emphasis on, we know him. We know Jesus. We, we grew up with Jesus. Where, where, where did he get this stuff from? What makes him so special? Because we know Jesus, verse 3. Is this not the carpenter? Is this not the son of Mary, the brother of James and, jo and, and, and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are, are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. And, and translation, they thought he was just pulling, a, pu pulling off some kind of smoke show. They thought he was pulling a trick on everybody. Because they knew Jesus. He was just an ordinary guy. He was a, an average Nazarene carpenter. And those that were closest to him, he left for a few months, he came back, he had this big following, he was healing the sick, he was you know, blessing the poor, he was preaching sermons. And those that grew up with him were like, Jesus? Of Nazareth? That's the guy that's making everybody turn their heads? The carpenter? But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, in his own house. So he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. 
So in these early days of Jesus' ministry, nobody was marveling at him. Nobody was, was pondering the significance of his life. People that, that knew him were writing him off. Nobody had a celebration every December for the birth of Jesus because they didn't think he was a big deal at all. All these years later, obviously Jesus has gotten his due. He receives glory, adoration, all and praise every day. Again, the years are numbered after him. <laughs> An entire season is dedicated to him. But in his own generation, in his own hometown, he got nothing but scoffs and eye rolls. The only marveling going on was his own surprise that they could not see what God was about to do, what God was doing right in front of their own eyes. So can you imagine a world? It's impossible for us because we're, we're so inundated. We're so surrounded by Jesus and Christmas. Can you imagine a world in which Jesus lived, breathing and in the flesh? Can you imagine a world where people didn't recognize Jesus for who he was? It's impossible to imagine a world where everyone doesn't recognize who Jesus is and understand how he changed everything. It's almost impossible, but that's the world that Jesus lived in. Nobody really understood the gravity of his life and purpose until after he died, or at least right before he died. And he had fans, yeah, he had followers of plenty, but even those who were diehard Jesus followers, they never would have dreamed of the world we live in all these years later. They hoped and they believed he might change their lives and their world, but the world for generations to come, that's a little bit of a stretch. And by no means did they ever point to his birth as being a matter of importance. And that's probably because nobody really knew his origin story until after he was no longer on earth. All this came about afterwards, after Jesus was in fact killed by the Romans. And really, it's the events surrounding his death. It's the things he said before, right before he died, that caused everyone to step back and say, maybe we underestimated just what kind of man Jesus was. Maybe we failed to recognize who he actually is. It's hard for us to unsee things and to know things. We read about Jesus coming on the scene and starting his ministry as a 30-year-old. We think, well, who couldn't have seen it coming? Have you not read Luke 2? And no, they hadn't read Luke 2 because it had not been written yet. Of course, they, the events of Luke 2 had taken place. The shepherds saw, the wise men saw, Herod ordered a massacre of babies in fear of who the wise men claimed to be looking for. All that happened, yes, but this society was a very what-have-you-done-for-me-lately kind of people, much like any society. So even the shepherds, having told people what they saw and heard, nobody really believed them, and nothing really happened after Jesus was born. In fact, his family relocated to Egypt as refugees for two or three years. Then they moved back to Nazareth, which was even less significant than Bethlehem. And then Jesus, for whatever reason, went off the grid from infancy to his 30-year-old to his beginning of his ministry. He lived a low-key life. By the time he began teaching and demonstrating power, nobody was talking about his birth. Nobody knew about his birth, except for his mother. Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. Because she knew, she knew that one day when the time was right, Jesus would be recognized as the Messiah, he truly was. It'd be a long road until that happened. In fact, when John the Baptist started tilling the ground and preparing the people for what God was about to do, and he began to identify Jesus as God's Messiah, people thought John was crazy. 
As word spread about Jesus of Nazareth allegedly being God's anointed, the Savior Israel was waiting for, people responded like this. In John 1, here's what Nathaniel says. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can you imagine you get a guest star role in the Bible and that's what you, get to, that's what you remember to say? Can anything good come out of that dump? And even his own family who live there, they would agree with Nathaniel. We don't think that Jesus is the guy you're looking for. The one who came out of Nazareth is the one who all history pivots around, though. Eventually, it didn't matter where Jesus grew up. People started paying attention because he began performing miracles, and it was clear he was from God. Because how else could you do the things that he did? After a few years, he ratcheted up the signs and wonders. He healed the blind. He raised the dead. And at that point, nobody was writing him off anymore, including the powers that be, including the Jewish government, which was really a shadow government of the Roman Empire. And they started getting a little nervous because if Rome got wind of someone like Jesus who could literally raise the dead, if Rome got wind that Jesus had this following, they wouldn't tolerate it in Rome. When they felt threatened, they would just go in and wipe a whole town down, wipe a whole town out, just to be done with the, with the possibility of an insurrection. So the Jewish leaders were very, 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 very nervous because they thought they had a pretty good thing going. They had a nice little relationship with Rome. They had their own seat at the table. They had power. They had influence. So they had a meeting after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on as if they could control him, as if they had the power, but they thought they did. <laughs> if we let him go on like this, Everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come in and take away both our place and our nation. The authorities knew what they had to do. Even though that some on the council believed that Jesus was actually God's anointed, they were afraid of losing their seat of power. One of the ways the Jews kept time in this generation was according to whoever was high priest. So if you read Jewish history, it would be you know, in the 12th year of the high priest or in the 10th year of the high priest because they had no king anymore. So the high priest of this day was a guy named Caiaphas. And he is the one that leads the charge against Jesus in order to protect his name and protect his fame because he felt like that was all that he had to cling to. So Caiaphas says, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said, you know nothing at all. Guys, you're worried about Jesus ruining our story. You're worried about this Nazarene carpenter. You're worried about him. We have the power. We're in control. We are going to write history. You don't understand that it's better that one man should die for the people. Now, he didn't realize what he was saying when he said that because he wasn't saying that in a salvation way. He was saying that in a, hey, we're going to get Rome to kill him so that Rome doesn't come and kill all of us. Because we're going to make sure Rome knows we are not with him. We do not support him. And we'll threaten any Jew that wants to cross the line and go on his side. Little did Caiaphas know what he brainstormed in this moment. So Caiaphas made a plea to the Roman governor over Judea, Pilate, and Pilate made a special trip into town. And they rolled out the red carpet for him. 
The Jews told Pilate that Jesus was a threat. He claimed to be king. Not just Israel's king, but they told Pilate, Jesus claims to be a king greater than Caesar. And Pilate thought, well, man, if, if Rome finds out about this, they'll kill me for letting it happen, letting it go on. Because in those days, if you claim to be a king, if you claim to be a king, there had to be a story behind you. And Pilate knew it was his job to go in and get the story because kings don't just show up. Kings don't just pop up out of nowhere. They have a dynasty. They're attached to a family. So if Jesus had some claim on this world, higher than Caesar even, then somebody needed to get to the bottom of that because Rome would not tolerate somebody thinking that they had the power to rule their world. If you will, flip over to John chapter 18 with me. We're going to wrap up around this little exchange between Pilate and Jesus. John 18 is, we're jumping in to the interrogation between Pilate and Jesus. So Jesus is brought before Pilate and Pilate's main objective, if Jesus was a king, Pilate had to figure out what family out there had claims to the throne that he was put in to protect. He was put in place to protect. So John 18, Jesus has been brought into the Pilate's court. They've been mocking him and make insulting him. And then Pilate's going to enter into the praetorium and he's going to ask Jesus point blank. Are you a king? And if so, what kingdom do you represent? So Pilate enters the praetorium again, calling Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered and said, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? He said, do you really want to know? Do you care? Do you, do you, have, do you even know our story? Or are you just doing this because you're, you're a puppet? And again, this has really got under Pilate's skin. Pilate had a big ego, but he was just a little guy. He was just a puppet on the string of Caesar. And Jesus kind of pokes and prods at that. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation, the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? I, I know enough about the Jewish people that if they claimed, if, if they would love to have a king, but you've made them mad. You've made them, you've upset them. So clearly if they thought you were the king, they would support you, but they think you're a nobody. They think you're a fraud. They think that you're going to cost them everything. Who are you? What have you done and wh where are you from? And then Jesus answers in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight for, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Now, this, this is the point where Pilate thinks, this guy is a lunatic. This guy has lost his mind. I mean, what, what, other, what other place is there? I mean, Rome is the king of the world. And, and, and this guy who's literally about to be crucified is talking so esoteric and so out of his, out of his mind. I mean, what? so, and, and Pilate wants to get back to, to the brass tacks of things. Are you a king then? I mean, are, are, you, are you okay? Jesus, you're not a king of this world. So you're not really a king then. And, and, and Jesus says, you have rightly said that I am a king. And, and then he makes this, Statement, for this cause, I was born. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. 
everyone who hears my voice, everyone who is over the truth hears my voice. And at this point, Pilate is thinking, man, this guy is delusional. What is truth? Who, who, who are you, Jesus? And if you read the whole story, they go back and forth. And then finally, Pilate is terrified at the end of the, at, by, by the end of it all. Because Jesus looks him in the eyes and he is fearless of what Pilate can do to him. And he looks at him and he says, I would not, you would not be in the position to kill me if I did not allow you this opportunity. And Pilate finally says to him, where are you from? And Jesus will not answer. But Jesus says to Pilate, for this reason I was born I came into this world, as in, I come from heaven. That I am the all-existing God. I am the word of God that became flesh. And you don't know all that. You will not understand all that. But before you were, I am. Before you were, I was in glory with my Father, and I came to be one of you, one of the people of this world, so that I might could save them. Jesus came into a world full of people trying to save themselves. That's the truth. That's the truth that Jesus speaks of. He came to a world to save people because people were trying to save themselves and doing a bad job at it. And that's how we still operate. We try to save ourselves. We make a name for ourselves, make a mark on history. We try to be somebody, be remembered as somebody for something. And he clues us in on the most important truth we'll ever hear. He came into this world because we will not and we cannot save ourselves. If you want to know the very short summary of why did Christmas happen, because we will not and we cannot save ourselves. So God did something to save us from ourselves. Our place in history is but a vapor, a raindrop and a monsoon. We are here today and gone tomorrow. And all the people that tried to fight for their place, Caiaphas and Pilate, Herod and Caesar, their footnotes, the only reason we know them, it's because they're footnotes in Jesus' story. But, but don't you see, this is the reason Jesus was born? To do as the angels sing, to bring good news of great joy for all people, to bring God's favor on every fallen soul. His kingdom is not of this world. It's not for this world. He's born from a greater place. He's come to take us to a greater place. We look back on his birth, and according to those who witnessed it, it was obvious that it was not a normal occurrence. The night sky tore. The realms of glory could be seen from below. But as, as abnormal as his birth was, so too was his death. And you might wonder, if Jesus was God in flesh, why did he have to die? Well, if you just think about it, why would God ever become flesh unless it was to do something for us that we desperately needed why would he disgrace his glory with anything resembling this fallen world? Again, because this was the reason he was born, to come and die in our place. He allowed the powers that be. He allowed the powers that be to take his life, to prove to all of us that he is greater than any power of this world. He is greater than the powers beyond this world. Not just Rome, but sin and death. He would die at their hands to set the stage and leave them in the grave and overcome our greatest enemies. And so, he was crucified. And all of his followers fled, except for one, John, the writer of the story. But somebody else stood by the cross. Over in chapter 19, verse 25, John lets us know this very important detail. 
Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother. And that's just a throwaway line. I mean, we read it and we think, well, that's awful that she had to watch him. But think about this. John portrays Jesus as this glorious God made flesh. John doesn't tell us the Christmas story. He doesn't tell us the way Jesus was born and all the details that Luke and Matthew give us. John just says, hey, in the beginning was the Word, Word became flesh, dwelt among us, we behold His glory. He is God in a body. And here at the end, standing by His cross, watching Him suffer and die, was the woman that carried Him and gave birth to Him and raised him. And now she had to watch her son die the most gruesome death of them all. Can you even imagine what she must have saw and felt that day? And can you imagine that Jesus, as he looked at this woman who was instrumental into his entrance in this world, because God came through a woman. He came through the natural means. He became an embryo. He became... A fetus, he was born from a woman. He was born one of us. Can you imagine? He went through this process. Mary raised him. And not only did Jesus suffer physically on that cross, but he had to suffer the emotional torment of watching his own mother heartbroken as he bled out. And to answer the age-old question, Mary knew. She knew. She knew that this was why I was born. She had always knew from the, from the day he was born, things were different. Only now did it become clear and would the rest of the world be clued in. And Mary would go on to tell Matthew and Mark and Paul and Luke what she knew of those early days and tell them about the first Christmas because she was the only one living to tell the story. And now we look back and it's obvious from the day that Jesus was born, the world was on a brand new course Jesus' entrance into this world split history. There would be a before and there would be an after. And you can trust, you, we can trust that because there is his mother who was there before and it was there after. And she stood there as he died. And she knew one day they will look back on the day he was born and they will split history at that point. Because before he came into the world, there was no hope. Before he came into the world, there was no good news. There was no great joy. There was no salvation for all people. But since he has been born to do this, everything has changed. And after the church started, the message was spread far and wide that Jesus came to bring good news of great joy to all people. He came so that there would be a before and an after in everyone's life. And that's the kind of difference that Jesus wants to make in your life all these years later. Before you were dead and separated, lost and confused and empty. Now you're alive, connected, found, focused and filled with hope and peace and joy and love. It's undeniable that Jesus has split history down the middle. But has he impacted your life in the same way? That's the question. There is no question that he has divided history. There is no question there was before and after. That is true in the most literal sense and in all the, the grand scheme of how you look at history and how it's unfolded. The question is, has he split your history down the middle? Has he split your story down the middle? 
This is why he was born. He was born to take our place, to defeat our enemies, to open the gates of his kingdom and bid all of us to come in. Before there was darkness. And now the light of Christmas has come. You know, you, you've, you've, we've all heard the story of Christmas a thousand times, but now, but now we know the story of how Christmas became the center turning point of history. But what matters most is, is Christmas the turning point in your story? We split time up, B.C. and A.D. Jesus was born and everything since is the year of the Lord. It's a year in which his favor has rested on every soul. Good news, great joy, all people. You know, we, we look at the year 2023 and we think, man, we're just, it's just, we're so far away from when Jesus came. Things are getting so bad. The world's an awful place. But you know what that, word, that number means? 2023 AD, it means this is the year of the Lord. That this has been the 2023rd year in which the world has received a favor from God. The angels sang, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, goodwill to all people. So when you look at the date on your check, on your calendar, and you see that big number at the end, you think this is the year of God's favor because ever since Christmas, it has rested on even me. But the question is, is Christmas the turning point in your story like it's been in history? He brings all of us to what we need, uh, uh, exactly what we need. We have to admit that we need salvation. He brings, that he brings that we want to be a part of his kingdom and we want him to rule our lives because that is the difference between darkness and light, lost and found, before and after. Jesus is the difference. God has drew near to us. And you can step into his light and his life today. Facing the worst death imaginable, he looked the devil in the eyes and he said, this is why I was born. And from the moment that I put on flesh, from the moment I opened, from the moment I opened my eyes on this planet, my destiny was to take the place of every sinner so that they could take a place in God's family, so that they could be a child of God, just as I am. That is how Christmas changed everything. And that is why history is divided before and after this very day in history. We're going to do something a little different to close everything off today. We're going to have a word of prayer. And we're going to bring the kids up here and they're going to sing happy birthday to Jesus because after all, it is his birthday. And we know, we know just how significant his birthday is because history has been divided ever since he came into our world. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for Christmas. Thank you for showing us how Christmas changed everything. And thank you that even though those that walked with Jesus didn't think he was going to be anybody special, even though those that were in his hometown thought he was just a nobody, they were wrong. And after Jesus was crucified and after everybody began to see the whole story, they admitted that Jesus changed everything. 
This is why he was born, to draw a line in the sand, not just to change history, but to change our lives. And God, if there's anybody in the house today that would admit that the turning point in their life isn't, the, isn't Jesus, isn't Christmas, that there isn't that before and after for them, Lord, let them talk to you today and make that decision today that they want to have an after. They want to see you rule and reign in their life, and they want your favor to rest on them. And Christmas promises that is the reality they can live in. That is what God with us means. God, thank you, and we are so blessed to be in your presence today. May you give everybody a very Merry Christmas, being reminded of your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.